0: Amen. Good evening, everyone. How are we doing? Awesome. It is great to be with you here tonight. Jordan, Amy, thank you so much. Y'all rock. Thanks for leading us into the presence of God. Um, hey, if we haven't met yet, my name's Nick. I serve here at our church uh, as our community pastor. And I just want to say it's an honor uh, to be here with you tonight. Um, if you're new with us, yeah, I'm excited to be here. If you're new with this, this is just our third time ever uh, doing this event that we're calling uh, The Table. And this is a, uh, man, I am not super emotional, but I, I'm getting kind of emotional thinking about it because I remember a little over two and a half years ago, this group of ragtag young adults walking up to me. and were like, hey, Nick, we need to start a young adult ministry, man. To which I said, cool, I got married at 20. I don't even know what that means. I was going to bed at 8 o'clock when I was 20 years old. So y'all got to do it. And I'm looking at this row, and I see all of these amazing young adults that I've gotten to know over the past several years, my heart is like bursting with, uh, with pride and joy uh, because God is doing something really, really unique in our young adults. And that's not even counting our amazing college students, that, that God has already been doing something really incredible uh, through amazing pastors like Austin Fisher and Carl Baker, and now through an incredible pastor, Ms. Sydney Flieger, doing an awesome job taking our college ministry to the next level. And I'm just... I'm grateful, I really am, uh, that I get to play a really small part uh, tonight, and I hope uh, and I believe that, that God has a word for us tonight uh, that will help us uh, just honor him more uh, with, our, with our lives. And so, uh, if you're joining us, um, you know, just this is your first time, we've been talking about, over the last couple months, uh, God's will for our lives. What is God's will? I remember I became a Christian at 19 years old, and that was like the first thing in my mind. Man, God's will is this big, vast thing. What do I need to do to find out God's will so I don't mess this whole thing up, right? A lot of us, I know that weighs heavy on our mind. If you're in college, you're a young adult, you're thinking through, you want to honor Jesus. You want to serve him and, and, and make his name known. You want to follow God's will for your life. And Sydney did a great job, our first uh, event, explaining about the first step in knowing God. There are no shortcuts. You just need to, or knowing God's will is to, one, know God. Because you don't want to have purpose without God. You'll just be miserable. And so, Sydney did a great job talking about to know God's will, you first and foremost have to know God and be known by Him. And last month, Austin talked about uh, God's will is not something that we have to go way out of our way to discover and find, God's will is something that we obey. And so he gave us that helpful Venn diagram uh, last month where, you know, there's so many things that you could be doing to honor Jesus, but start with what are you passionate about? What are you gifted to do? And then what will bless the world? And so if you're uh, a, a kind of an intuitive person uh, or perceptive of all, you're probably noticing that, that Sydney or Austin, they didn't stand up here and give you this like perfect step-by-step blueprint to like, hey, do these things and boom, you're right in the middle of God's will. Austin did a great job talking about that, that it's not as easy as finding a Bible passage and saying, that's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. The Bible is not clear on who you should marry, on what job you should take, on what school you should go to. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell you what you should name your kids one day. And in fact, I would recommend staying completely away from Bible names, okay, maybe go with... uh, You know, something like this. I'm a basketball fan. I wanted to name my daughter after the greatest basketball player of all time. I will die on that hill. There's no argument. I was wanting to name her LeBron Jane. My wife went out. We named her Ellis. We also figured her dad's 5'7", her mom's 5'1". She got a better chance of being a horse jockey than a basketball player. So stay away from biblical names because there's names in there like Dorcas uh, and Nimrod. And so you don't want to go there for that. But Scripture doesn't lay it out that simply, and that can be frustrating at times. But what the Bible and what Scripture and the story of the kingdom of God invites us into is getting to know our Creator and partnering with Him on how we can bless the world and honor His name. And so tonight, sorry to burst your bubble, no specifics. Um, I'm not going to give you a blueprint. Step one through five to a healthy finding God's will for your life. Uh, But what we are going to do is look at a specific story found in Matthew chapter 4. It is one of my favorite uh, stories in all of Scripture. Uh, And I think it's going to help us discern God's will uh, for our lives. And I'll just kind of lay out what I'm going to be talking about tonight. Sydney already hit on it in the welcome. I think, first and foremost, to know God's will, you need to know who God is. Also, you need to know who you are in Christ. That prayer that we pray to receive. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. That right there is the most true thing about you. Is that your identity is forever tied with that of Jesus Christ. And that is really, really good news. And so that tonight is God's will for you. Is that you would know what your identity is. Who your identity is. And that you would receive your identity. Because here's the big takeaway. You're not going to be able to live out God's will If you don't know who you are in Christ. If you are not secure in your identity, you will spend every moment of every day trying to win the approval of God and win the approval of others. And that is an exhausting place to be. I've been there and was there for many years early on in following Jesus. And so what we want to do is receive our identity. We don't seize it. It's given to us. God graciously Uh, In his mercy and his goodness gives that to us. And so we want to receive our identity in Christ tonight. And so the story that we're going to read from is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And just a little bit of context, uh, Matthew in chapter 3, it's the story where John the Baptist comes comes on the scene dressed like a wild man and preaching the kingdom of God is near come to be baptized. And Jesus shows up and is baptized. And the very next thing that we read is here in verse 1. Uh, or, or at Jesus is baptized, the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And then starting in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, I would be too. I'm hungry after 40 minutes. Um, so we see that Jesus... Is baptized. It's this incredible story where the heavens open up. A dove, uh, the Spirit, like a dove, descends down on Jesus, and the Father cries out, "Hey, everyone, this is my Son whom I love, and I'm well pleased." It's this public affirmation of who Jesus really is. And the very next thing we see that the Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. It's it's kind of baffling to me why God would do that. Why would you lead your Son who you just showed affirmation and showed the world who he is, now you're going to lead him into the wilderness uh, to be tested. Um, And then, so we'll we'll kind of cover that here in just a moment. Uh, But I want to look at actually how the devil goes about testing um, Jesus. You're going to see maybe in your translation the word tempted. Uh, A lot of the, the, it could be translated as tested as well. Uh, And that I have found is actually probably a more helpful uh, definition. And so let's start there in verse 3 how uh, Satan is tempting or testing Jesus. It says, Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Remember, Jesus had been fasting 40 days, so he's hungry. He says, If you're the Son of God, then just turn these stones into bread. Come on, show me who you are. And Jesus says to him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out. Of the mouth of God. The second temptation says, Then the devil uh, took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written. This time he uses scripture. He says, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not even strike your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91. So here's the devil. Uh, confronting the Son of God, saying just if you're the Son of God, if you really are who you say you are, just throw yourself off here." Your, you know, Psalm 91 says that God will protect his anointed, and so just go ahead and do that. And you can see these first two tests, that these temptations of Jesus are very similar. Uh, uh, Satan, the devil, is trying to go after Jesus' identity. He's trying to get him to doubt who he is. And again, keep in mind, the Father has just proclaimed in front of everybody, this is my Son, and whom I love and I'm well pleased. And the very next thing we see, here's Satan tempting him, saying, If if you are who you say you are, I, I don't really believe it, you need to prove it to me. You need to show me that you really are who you say you are. And Satan tries to use Jesus' circumstances against him a little bit. Say, if you're the Son of God, why are you out here in the wilderness all by yourself for 40 days struggling? Oh, you're a Messiah? You're a king? I mean, where where's your travel party, man? You're out here by yourself. You've got no one around you, but you're a king. That's one of the first takeaways. Satan's always going to try to use the most pressing thing in your life right now. And sometimes it can be really big. Sometimes it can be really small. Sometimes it can be, man, I've got to study for this test, and I can't think about anything or anyone Except for myself. Maybe it's, I'm I'm not going to think about anyone or anything uh, until I get this job or till I land that promotion or until I find the person that I'm supposed to marry. There's this always pushing off, pushing off, pushing off. uh, And Satan wants to distract you from who you really are. He's going to use the most pressing thing and try to get you and trick you and tempt you into thinking that the most important thing about you is what's right in front of your face. But as we've already said, the most important thing about you is not your biggest struggle. It's not your biggest sin. It's not your biggest obstacle or your biggest success. The most important thing about you is that your Father in Heaven has says, this is my son or this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That right there is God's will for your life. Not that you would climb a ladder or that you would beat yourself up every time that you mess up but that you would receive your identity freely given to you through Jesus. He'll often tell us, like, if you really belong to God, why are you in the situation that you're in? And I don't know if you're anything like me. I start to doubt, and then when I start to doubt, I get really insecure. And when I'm insecure, I don't think about any of y'all. I just think about myself. And I need to fix me, fix me, fix me. And you can't really live out God's will when all you're doing is thinking about yourself. And that's honestly, that's the enemy's goal for your life. If you're in Christ, Jesus gladly says, whoever the Father gives me, I will never cast out of my hand. You are firmly placed in the grip of Jesus, and that's good news. And so your enemy knows, your tester, your tempter knows he cannot change your standing, he cannot change your status or your identity, so he'll do everything he can to distract you from who you are. And if he can get you focused on yourself and not God and not your identity, then he can keep you from living out the full life that Jesus promised you. Listen to Jesus' response uh, when he comes back for that third temptation. Remember, he offers, he says, hey, if, if, you're, if you're the son of God, just, just kind of, you know, turn that stone into bread, that urgent need that Jesus had. Hey, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off this temple and and God will take care of you if you really are who you say you are. So he's going after his identity. The last one, the last one's a little bit differently. There in verse 7, or sorry, verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left and angels began to serve him. Just imagine if Jesus wasn't secure in who he was, secure in his identity. You could see how easy it would be for him to fall for that last temptation. Here's the reality. Jesus is a king. He was anointed king. He has a kingdom kingdom. And if Jesus isn't secure in his identity, he'll jump at the first chance to take control and seize a kingdom. And that is what your enemy wants to do for you. He wants to kind of muddy the waters a little bit. He wants to get you doubting who you are in Christ. And then he's going to come along and he's going to offer the subpar, sinful, harmful kingdom to you. But in that moment, it's not going to look subpar It's not going to look like it won't satisfy you. It'll look like the best thing in the world if you don't know who you are. But listen to Jesus' response. He says, go away, Satan. It shook Jesus to his core. It offended him to his core to the point he says, get out of here. I don't even want to think about a kingdom that has nothing to do with my father. Because everything that I am, remember his, his identity is wrapped up in the beloved son in whom the Father loves. So the, the very idea to have some kingdom without the Father is not something that he is interested in. It's why Jesus was able to say a couple verses uh, earlier, Man should not live on bread alone, but by on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus wasn't saying, like, you don't need food. Obviously you need food. But if all you need is food and water, you're not human. You're just an animal. And Jesus is saying there's something more important than food and water to be human. It's the presence of God. That is the marker to be human. That's the only way that we become truly human is to live in the presence of God. And from that identity, Jesus passes the test. It's interesting. uh, In Matthew 16... The only other time Jesus ever says, get away, Satan, with such force and such just uh, gravitas, if you will, is actually found in Matthew 16. Now, Matthew 16 is where uh, Jesus asked Peter, hey, who do people say that I am? He said, you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, you got it. I'm right. But in verse 21, let's see, we pick up the story there. It says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. You're not going to die. It cannot happen to you. Listen to Jesus' response to his best friend. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Because you're not thinking about God's concern, you're thinking about human concerns. Now, I empathize with, with Peter here. I think if one of my best friends... I've got a few you know, people in the periphery of my life who's like, Listen, man, I've got I to get out of town. I'm like, Cool. We'll, we'll see you when I see you. But if it's your best friend... This is Peter and Jesus. He'd been best friends with him for three years. And, and, and Jesus tells him, Hey, listen, I'm going to be killed. And Peter steps in and says, No, you're, you're the Messiah. Like, we've been hearing about you for hundreds of years. Messiah means you ride into Rome and you start beating some you-know-what. Like, that's what kings and saviors and messiahs do. And Jesus says, yeah, I was offered that by the tester, by the the tempter, by the evil one. And it's got nothing to do with my father. I don't want anything to do with that. The way that I usher in my kingdom is I don't conquer my enemies. I allow them to crucify me. Because this kingdom that Jesus operates is different. World kingdoms are about every kingdom that's ever existed. Newsflash, even ours, is about world domination and destroying those who stand in your path. That's not Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is about giving up his life for his enemies. And so Peter correctly identified that Jesus was Messiah, but failed to realize what that looked like. He failed to realize the true identity of his king and thus his own identity. And Jesus was able to live this out and give up His life for His enemies, again, because He's received that proclamation from the Father, this is my Son, in whom I love, and I'm well pleased. And just like Jesus, again, your, your tester is going to use your circumstances to cause you, uh, to distract you. Um, and when you're distracted, when you're insecure, when you're not trusting and you're doubting the very goodness of God, that's when you'll be offered the chance at your very own kingdom. And it's going to seem really great. You're going to get to have a chance to do things your own way. In your kingdom, in my kingdom, it may look like when someone wrongs me, I'm just going to hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness. Now I'm going to maybe talk about them behind their back. That feels right in the moment. That feels, like, that feels like a good way to operate a kingdom. Maybe it's for you, it's, you know, I'm stressed and so... You know, one extra drink's not a big deal. Maybe, maybe two, maybe three. It sounds good in the moment to operate your kingdom your own way. But we know that when sin, which is what this is, has its full say, it brings forth death, not the full life Jesus is talking about. We try our own way, can't satisfy. We know it. We need every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. We need to live before him. And so the question becomes, do you know your identity in Christ? Do you know the whisper of the lies from the tempter? Jesus passed the test. Will you pass the test? Can you? Can you pass the test? I want to go back and look at the story again because in this story something quite profound happened that I intentionally chose to skip over. But really, it's the main thrust of this story. I really want you to lean in and just for a couple more minutes and, and listen to this because this is what this story is about. Why did the Spirit allow Jesus to go into the wilderness and be tested? It was not Satan that drugged Jesus out there. The Spirit of God takes Messiah into the wilderness to be tested because testing, a test, often reveals who you really are. Show of hands, how many of you in here would say you're a patient person? Okay, cool. I, I, Aaron, I believe you. I bet you are patient. <laughs> well, get. Hey, you know what you're not? You're not liars. So amen for that. So I would I would kind of say sometimes I'm a patient person. But last month, this little thing called the snowpocalypse happened. And I had ordered some things on Amazon that I was expecting on Tuesday. And I got this notification that said it'll be here next Tuesday. And I thought, my life is over. Like, what in the world? I had some little LED strip lights that were coming my way. And now I've got to wait an extra week? Like, no, I am... And then that test revealed, yeah, I'm not a patient person. A test will reveal, you know, who you really are. Not who you think you are, not some idealized version of yourself. A test will reveal who you really are. You know, oh, I'm loving and compassionate. Someone cuts you off in traffic, you turn into, you know. Hey, okay. I don't even have to finish that. Thank you. Okay, so a test is going to reveal who you really are. So this test with the tempter is about to to reveal who Jesus of Nazareth is really is. And this tester, this tempter, is going to be pretty surprised at the outcome. So if you were a first century Jew, the story of Jesus' baptism and temptation would have sounded really familiar with you. If you're reading Matthew from beginning to end, you're going to to be like, wait a minute, this thing sounds kind of familiar. I think I've heard this story uh, before. See, the way Matthew structures this story is pointing to something really, really big. So Jesus, uh, in chapter 2, you can see that Jesus, as a child, comes out of Egypt, and he comes back into the promised land. And then in chapter 3, we just talked about it, he is baptized, he passes through the waters of baptism. And then immediately, where, where does Jesus go? He is led into the wilderness for a time of testing. If that story is starting to make sense, I mean, maybe you can think of a story in the Old Testament where God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And God, through his mighty right hand, rescues them and brings them out and passes them through the waters of the Red Sea. And then for 40 years, not 40 days, 40 years, they are tested in the wilderness. There's a big imagery being drawn in a parallel that, that, that Matthew wants all the readers, all, it was intended for a Jewish audience, he's wanting them to see Israel. This is you, and now here's Jesus who passed through the waters, and he is being tested. And Jesus actually makes this reference explicit when he responds to Satan for the first time, You shall not live by bread alone. When Jesus says that, he is actually quoting a passage of scripture from Deuteronomy, which is the book, uh, basically a long sermon from Moses. And he's reminding them, saying, All right, we were in slavery, God brought us out, and for 40 years we just kind of failed the test. And so here it is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. It says when Israel was finally about to leave the, uh, or the wilderness and enter into the land, God promised them, this is what Moses said, remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey, these 40 years in the wilderness, so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Now he humbled you by letting you go hungry. Any of this sounded familiar? Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so Jesus is standing there, being tested. And, and, and the in- interesting thing about this, every story in the gospel, there was an eyewitness account. Here, Jesus is alone. So it was Jesus himself that passed this story on. He wanted us to make sure that we, we received this story. So let me ask you this. So Israel wanders in the desert for 40 years... And then they enter the promised land. That's good news, right? Did Israel pass the test? Israel failed miserably. Israel failed the test. Did they remember all of God's commands? No. But here Jesus is being presented with the exact same test in the wilderness. And Jesus passes the test. And we see that Jesus becomes what Israel could never become in order to pass the test on their behalf. So Jesus... Represents them before God. And he passes the test on their behalf. In the second temptation, you see where Satan twists God's word just a little bit. And, and, um, and he, he challenges or tempts Jesus to jump off the temple and to test God's commitment to him. Can you think of a time where Satan showed up, twisted scripture just a little bit so that he could deceive man? Maybe, maybe in Genesis 3. Where God told Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree or you'll die. And Satan shows up and says, are you sure you'll die? Or is God just kind of afraid you'll be a little bit more like him? And they put God to the test. You see, Jesus presented with the same test, Adam and Eve. And Jesus passes the test on behalf of Adam and all of his descendants, which is us. And that's good news. Jesus, just like with Israel, he becomes the Adam that Adam could never become, and represents him before God. Romans 5.17 actually says it better. It says, by, If by one man, and that's Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? And so we see in the wilderness, Jesus become is tested But that test, Jesus was never going to fail that test because he is the son of God. Jesus is representing in our place. He's representing Israel. He is representing all of humanity, proving that he has conquered evil once and for all. So for those of us who are in Christ, we do not have to endlessly worry. I pose the question, will you pass the test? Can you pass the test? I've got bad news. You can't pass the test. You know you can't pass the test. You know it's so easy to hold on to unforgiveness. It's so easy uh, to take that, that, that other kingdom, that, those idols that you know. You know they don't satisfy. But day in, day out, we take the bait. It's because we forget our identity. But for those of us who are in Christ, we don't have to endlessly worry or wonder or stress or be neurotic about passing some test. Because we can't anyway. But we have Jesus who has passed the test on our behalf. And Jesus who bestows his righteousness upon us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. That on our own, we can't pass the test no matter how we try. And God in His goodness and His grace says, Cease from your works. Stop trying to pass a test that you cannot pass. Jesus has done it for you. And because of that, I've bestowed His righteousness on you. And so, can you tonight hear the Father saying... You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. You cannot seize your identity through effort, but you receive it by accepting that proclamation from the Father. And when you operate from that identity, you can go out into the world free to love and not have to worry and and try to win over people or win over God. You can rest in the fact that you are a son and daughter of God. And that's God's will for your life. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your son, Jesus. We are grateful that, God, even though we, we know, even as we confess right now that we, we have chosen idols over you, we'll do it again, and we'll do it again. But, God, we, we confess with gratitude because we know, God, that you made your son, Jesus, become sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Of God. We did not earn this, and therefore we cannot lose this. You have placed this in your hand. The truest thing about us is not our career, it's not our biggest struggle or our biggest success. The truest thing about us is the word you, Father, have spoken over us. We are your son and daughter, and you are well pleased in us. God, let us receive that proclamation from our good and gracious Father tonight.